Circles are better than rows, but I'll stick with the rows for this morning. And pretend you're in a big circle. You're in a semicircle, so that's halfway there. What a salubrious day this is. Wow. Got some work here to do. See, you came to church with your eyes closed. What a salubrious day. Wow. 1,000 welcomes to you, whether you know what salubrious means or not. You're still welcome. We're glad you're here. Did you know, I've got a little secret that we didn't let out of the bag last week. So guess what? Guess what? Last Sunday, July the 5th, was Stan and Donna Ritchie's 35th wedding anniversary. Please stand up and accept our congratulations. God bless you. Every year is significant, but just seems like some years it's just, it's got to be mentioned. And we not just uh, congratulate you, but we thank God for you and for your testimony for the Lord. Um, a few weeks ago, I, uh, I, I brought a message entitled Ribbit, Ribbit. How many remember being here that day? Or maybe you've heard the message. Uh, yeah, okay, a few. Well, um, I don't usually promote anything when um, I'm preaching and I don't do uh, light commercials or I don't do any kind of marketing. But I got thinking after that message, someone sent this to me, that if I had been marketing that day, or I'd been trying to sell something, or I'd said, you know, before you leave, get the t-shirt, this is what it would have said. That's really dedicated to those of you that were here. You heard the message. You know the background of that story from Exodus chapter 8. And for the rest of you, just smile along. All right? And uh, humor us a little bit. Today, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to really attempt to emphasize, I'm going to try to reinforce the practical, real-life, experiential aspect of, on one hand, teaching, and on the other hand, learning. They're not one and the same, and oftentimes we mix them up. So let's say these two words uh, together, just teaching and learning. Let's say those together. Teaching and learning, two different things altogether. You see, part of the job of a teacher uh, or a trainer of any sort is to look for the weaknesses in the pupil or in the student or in the trainee in order to strengthen him or strengthen her. And the job of the student or the trainee is to then listen to the assessment of the teacher and to then follow the regimen that is prescribed for him or her. If a student is not willing to work or to listen, and just trust me on this, with a couple of degrees in uh, education and with 20-some years of experience administering schools and dealing with students and parents and all the rest of that network, 
Um, I think I have a little bit of credibility here to stand on. If a student is not willing to work on that particular assessment or regimen or to listen to what's being said and what's being, uh, what's, what's being promoted here, then that student cannot grow. That student will not grow, whether it's academic or whatever uh, sphere you want, you want to enter. So now, in your mind's eye, with that little bit of background, imagine God as your trainer. He knows your weaknesses. He knows the temptations that are bound to make you fall. That is, when you are at your weakest, where you really have a potential for the devil to move in, to attack. If you've got a problem with letting your emotions overrule what you know is right, he knows it. He already knows it. If you have a tendency to get really angry over seemingly small things, he knows where you need more strength. The only way you can make a muscle stronger is if you exercise it. So, if you have a weakness with patience, He knows when and how to test it. If you have a weakness with patience, God knows when and how to test it. Especially when it comes to dealing with people. If you have a weakness with emotions, he works on it. He doesn't just confer with you on your training program. He doesn't just ask for your permission at every turn of the road. He simply allows certain things and guides along the way so that as life goes, you are able to be trained. You can train, you can grow, and this will bring you into spiritual wholeness. First, let me say, some of our greatest lessons in life come from experience. (laughs) Some of our greatest lessons in life come from experience. Say, boy, you're repeating a lot today. Well, you know, we don't need to know new things. We just need to be reminded of things we already know. And I don't think there's a person in this room over... 15 years of age that wouldn't identify with that statement because some of our greatest lessons in life come from experience. And again, especially in dealing with people. Just do a little survey here real quickly. How many of you in the run of a week from the last time I saw you or maybe from last Sunday or the last time you were here to now, you've had some kind of a dealing with another human on some level? Okay. A few of you are... Okay, Uh, try that again one more time. Okay, good. Some of you then leave here and go right to the other planet you came from. I'm not sure what, okay, but that's fine. That's fine. Just come back to the planet next Sunday, and we'll welcome you with open arms. Now, I think I've learned personally, and I just want to take a moment here to be, be a little vain, but I think I've learned more about patience and love and what, what it's all about through my family, my children, my wife, than I could have ever learned in a thousand books. Because when we're thrown into situations where we have to deal with people, 
And then I always interject by saying, yes, and, we're, and I'm dealing all the time with sinful people. And people who are dealing with me are dealing with sinful people because when we talk about sinful people, that we have to include ourselves, right? Then it can really teach me a lot about myself and about others and about how life works and how people really click or don't. Do you wonder why then, and I've been wondering this a lot, why people kind of resign, as soon as they come through the door of the house, they have to resign themselves to a TV or a smartphone or a tablet instead of just talking to their family or their spouse or whoever when they get home. I saw a great ad the other day. Some folks were in a restaurant having dinner and they had all stacked their cell phones one on top of the other on the table. The rule was first one to reach for the cell phone paid for the dinner. <laughs> I, I, I've never seen anything in 10 years that I love more than that. By and large, I don't even take mine into establishments like that because I know if I do, it'll ring. And I don't want to be, uh, I just don't want to be ignorant in front of other people. There, that's as gentle as I can be. Now, I don't understand why people come into a house and go out and come back in and go out and come back in but they never have conversation. They never communicate with the others in that house because these, and, and here's why, I, I'm saying why do they do it, and, and then, then I'm going to tell you, that because real, and Todd's been talking about this, real relationships take work. And most people, when they figure that out, they're no longer interested. They take work, they take patience, they take the usage of weak spiritual muscles like patience and care and concern and just plain love and respect that most of us would rather just leave lying on the couch. A strong faith says to God, I know I'm a weak person and I know I need your training. Send me whatever is needed. Be careful. Parents, teachers, children, Family, church members, neighbors, taxpayers, whatever. Send me whatever you need to do. Be careful. So that I can grow in faith and in godly living. A strong faith is willing to be put in different situations whereby we can grow in experience. Oh, 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 for such a faith. For such a faith. We're in a series, have been for a few weeks, and we'll take at least one more message, Lord willing. We're in a series entitled The Heel, H-E-E-L, Holder. And if you know your Bible at all, you probably recognize that as Jacob. This is the life of Jacob. This is segment three of that series, and it's entitled, You've Got Problems? Really? And I want you to look at that, if it's on the screen now, I want you to look at that title, and whether you write it down or not is the material, but I want you to write it down in your mind right now. Just say, I've got problems? Really? All right. Because if I went around today, I'd talk about problems. I'd have all kinds of people lining up to tell me about their problems. Listen carefully. 
Because as we look today at Jacob's dealings with Laban, we're going to see how God dealt with some of Jacob's greatest weaknesses by having him deal with other people. Yeah, weak people. Yeah, sinful people. Yeah, people that were nowhere near being in the will of God or even aware of it. And as Jacob dealt with these cousins of his, who really were, God helped him to grow. And as we look at this story of Jacob and see it unfold, perhaps the Holy Spirit, and this is my prayer, will help us to grow alongside of this man, Jacob. I pray that happens. So we're going to observe what I call various silos of training or of learning. We can call it either one for now. And the first silo is training in patience. You might have known I'd start there. If you look back at the first two messages in this series, you can denote one main weakness in Jacob, the heel holder. It was his idea, of course nobody here, myself included, would or could ever identify with this. But that idea that he needed to try and control how and when God would give him his blessings. God had to change this attitude in him that wouldn't allow God to be God in his own time and on his own terms. We all want God, and we all want God to be prominent in our lives, and we all want God to control the the issues that we're dealing with and to handle our problems. But so many times we want to determine when God does what and how he does what. The first problem God had to deal with in Jacob was his tendency to deception. So far, what we've learned about the life and the story of Jacob, he's pretty much a master at deception. And if you haven't read up on it or you're not quite sure where I'm coming from here, we don't have time to reread it, but I would encourage you to go back to Genesis chapter 25 and read all the way through chapter 31, just those seven chapters, and it it will help you a lot to get the whole story and then to fit these pieces together. When Jacob arrived at Haran after 500 miles and several months, being in his 70s, he was overwhelmed with joy. While he was sitting by a well, resting, one of the first people he ran into was Rachel, Laban's daughter. I don't know if it was love at first sight or not, but at any rate, Jacob couldn't contain himself. So I'm taking you this morning, if you would, to Genesis chapter 29. And we're going to look first at just a couple of verses there, verses 11 and 12. And you can read along with me or just follow as we read this. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. Couldn't have been that bad. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah, so she ran and told her father. He was so happy to see his long-lost cousins after this long and arduous journey of 500 miles. Um, but the happiness wouldn't last very long. You know, he's still family. Have any of you had family visit this summer? Okay, so you know what I mean. You're really happy for 
five minutes, but then, you know, it doesn't last real long. Okay. Just want you to stay with me here. After working for Uncle Laban for a month, if you'll find this at verse 14 of chapter 30 and all the way through verse 20, he finally got around to asking him, Laban asked Jacob, uh, what he thought he should pay him for his work. And Jacob was attracted to Rachel, and so he said, I'll work for your daughter, Rachel. And the deal was he would work for seven years for Laban to win the hand of his daughter, Rachel. Imagine that, young fellows. Or older fellows, too, because uh, Jacob's in his 70s here. How would you respond if you met a gal that you really, really liked, and her father said, here's the deal. You be my slave for seven years, then you can marry her. But you cannot touch her until then. And that was an offer Uncle Laban couldn't refuse if this guy really wanted to stay around. And it wasn't easy work either. Matter of fact, he was put in charge of all the sheep, the goats, the rams, all the livestock. And Jacob later on described what he had to do. If you go down to chapter 31, verses 40 to 41, he explains it. And so I'll read it to you. He said, this was my situation. The heat consumed me in the daytime and the cold at night and sleep fled from my eyes. Now, before I go to the next verse, I just had, I had a thought while reading this again the other day. And I thought, I wonder if you ever thought of counting sheep. Oh, no. Okay. It was like this for the 20 years I was in your household. I'll go back to the 20 years because I've already mentioned seven I worked for you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks, and you changed my wages 10 times. Sounds like quite a deal here. So he said, the heat consumed me in the daytime. I nearly froze to death at night. I couldn't sleep for I just, I was so overtired I couldn't start to sleep. You see, when animals are calving, the farmer has to get up. It could be in the middle of the night, and he might have to do some un unlikely types of chores and make sure the birthing mother doesn't need help in any way and if so to assist and it's very difficult it's very time consuming any of you that ever lived on a farm near a farm visited a farm know people who farm you know that's a time consuming time of year that's the way Jacob lived for 20 years usually when you work hard you kind of You don't want to be too presumptuous, but you kind of figure you should get some kind of wages. Yes? Yes? Okay. Man, I'd like to have you working for me. Uh, Yeah. Yet after seven years, Jacob clearly found out what kind of an employer Laban was. Now, let's go to the wedding night, Genesis 29, and that begins at verse 22. And this is a story in itself, and three more messages in here. And I told Todd, I promised I wouldn't preach over two hours this morning unless you were really riding with me, which I expect you will be. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. Wait now. Whoa, wait, wait now, wait. And Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave a servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. This guy bargained for one woman, 
Now he's got two. Only there's a problem here. There's a big problem here. When morning came, there was Leah. Not really funny. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? I find it interesting here. I find it interesting here. Here's the great deceiver asking Uncle Laban, why have you deceived me? This is interesting stuff, isn't it? Yeah. The marriage ritual most likely, and and it's still followed in some places today. I have to laugh at how some people follow it. But the marriage ritual most likely then prohibited the husband from from, uh, really physically seeing the bride on that, in, during that wedding feast time, which could last a week, could last two weeks, until the wedding, the wedding night, everything was over, and she's revealed, and that's, that, I could go into the history of the veil, and the, oh, you can't see the bride on the, on, the, on the wedding day, and all that stuff, where all that came from, but let's just move ahead real quickly and say that there was a huge surprise coming for Jacob. And so Laban somehow had so much power over his two daughters that he was able to switch out Leah for Rachel. Now, Leah, all it says about her, she had very weak eyes, though I don't think that's really a problem, but it did mention that Rachel was very, very beautiful and Jacob was very attracted to her. Uh, get this in your mind, too, because this is extremely important. Leah was the older daughter, and Rachel was the younger daughter. Okay, we're still at the wedding. We're still having a great time. Feast is on. Who cares? So Laban somehow had so much power over these girls that he switched them out. And the only excuse Laban could come up with when Jacob confronted him was that this was part of the custom of the day. This was part of an ancient ritual. The older, the younger daughter couldn't be married before the older daughter. That would not be according to custom. And if that was so, shouldn't he, listen to this now, shouldn't he have said something of that nature to Jacob? Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Seven years ago? I guess he just never had a chance in all that time. To say, oh, Jacob, there's something we need to talk about. Huh? When you look at some of this stuff, really. So what was Laban's solution? Here was the deal. Jacob was able to marry Rachel a week later. But he also had to work for Laban seven more years for the daughter he wanted in the first place. Forget about the fact that he didn't want to work seven days for Leah, much less seven years. Wow. Now tell me the truth. You've got problems? (laughs) Really? (laughs) They're starting to minimize, aren't they? They'll be soon diminished altogether. When Jacob finally finished his 14 years, he's ready to head home. He wants to take his wives and his children. No more, no less. Get me out of here. Yet Laban's flocks were really prospering. Jacob was a great farmer, and he really turned into a worker, and he, he was no longer just like a stay home, 
stick around, close to the parents type of guy. No, he had really done some good work. And, you know, in that day, a man's wealth was determined by the size of his flocks and, and livestock and, and farm and all the rest of it. So Laban's flocks were prospering, and Laban didn't want to lose this guy, and he wanted to ride this wave a little longer. So he agreed to only allow Jacob to have the speckled and spotted animals. And I'm not even going to explain that to you. I'm going to leave it to you to do your homework and do some reading on this because uh, it, it's a great story. During the following six years, however, Laban decided to change the wages of Jacob ten times looking for excuse after excuse as to why Jacob shouldn't get what they'd already agreed upon. It was like working for an employer who tells you, oh, you're doing a great job. You know, you keep that up and I'll give you a raise in six months. And six months come and go and he conveniently forgets all about it. And there's nothing more frustrating than working with such a Chinook like that. You'd just like to wring their neck, wouldn't you? I mean, in a Christian way. Right. Mm. You say, I'm working for one now. You understand what I'm talking about. As Jacob had to deal with dear old Uncle Laban being lied to again and again and again and again, how did he respond? See, the story up to now is kind of convoluted, and you're kind of wondering about this guy, Jacob, and why is he considered one of the great saints of God, and he still is, and you'll see later. You know, you and I are not the ones who make us great saints of God. It's God himself. And you're going to see that as the story of Jacob unfolds. So Jacob had to deal with this old uncle, and he's lying and lying. So how does he respond? With a tremendous amount of patience. I mean, think about it. Even though he'd been hoodwinked, he agreed to marry Leah after she'd been defiled, knowing that no one else would want to marry her after he had been intimate with her. He could have demanded that he get to marry Rachel without working one more year, one more month, one more week, or even one more day. Yet he agreed to Laban's terms. Wow. So he'd already worked now 14 years, and now he's got to work six more years under this miserable father-in-law, even in the midst of 10 Pay rate changes. How many of us would have responded in such a way? Who here would have responded like that? Working for 20 years for a man who was about as generous as the IRS at tax time. I don't think too many of us would have put up with it. Not for 20 years. Not for 14 years. Not for 7 years. Not for a year. Come on. And so you're sitting here asking... What I've asked many times. How was Jacob able to deal with all this in this way? Can you imagine what went through Jacob's mind every time Laban lied to him? And I guess the only way that you really knew that Laban was lying is if his mouth was moving. And he would have said to himself, look, If I hadn't in the first place lied to my father, then I probably wouldn't be here. I I have a feeling he was thinking, if I hadn't stolen from my brother, then I wouldn't have Laban stealing from me. 
I probably deserve, no probably to it, every lie I receive. Yet, Lord, you have forgiven me. Crux of the matter right here. Help me to have the strength to deal with Laban in a loving way as you have dealt with me. Help me never to deal with anyone in this way again. See, as Jacob lived with Laban, he was reminded of what a liar he himself had been. He learned from Laban what his own sin was like, and he grew through it in spite of it all. Laban was a tremendous blessing to Jacob. You've probably read this story before, and you'd say, I'd never thought anybody would say that about Laban. But he was, because he was teaching him what lying was and what it felt like to be lied to. And Jacob probably never would have realized his lies or the far-reaching effect of them if he hadn't had the opportunity to work for Laban the liar for those 20 years. So the first silo of training, is training in patience. And I say, you've got problems. Really? Really? Let's look at the second silo. This is what I call training in works. Now, Jacob's training wasn't limited to Uncle Laban. Let me tell you, there's some other people going to be getting real involved in this story, so... Fasten your seatbelt. It was carried on through those within his own household, his own wives, Leah and Rachel. When Jacob came in from a hard day and night's work on the field, he certainly wasn't privy to a quiet night in front of the TV. He had to return to two sisters who were fighting not only for his affection, but also for his children. I want to say this in front of everybody this morning, and it's my disclaimer. To me, for me, Genesis, the 30th chapter, is one of the most difficult chapters in all of the Bible for me to comprehend. So if you struggle a little bit with this next portion, you get a pass, because I struggle with it every time I read it. But I'm going to try to break it down and clarify it for us so it'll be a little easier to, to understand. Because this chapter 30 features two women having a baby contest with their husband. Huh? Leah, the one with weak eyes, what does that have to do with anything? Starts out of the gate strong. In chapter 29, verses 31 through 35, if you're a note taker. She starts out of the gate with four boys, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. So she's got a nice head start. Rachel then gets angry, and she says in verse 1 of the next chapter, she says to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. When she doesn't have any children, she decides she'll throw her slave girl, Bilhah, B-I-L-H-A-H, at Jacob. And surprise, surprise, Bilhah has two children, and Rachel thinks in her mind, now I'm catching up with Leah. 
Then Leah, realizing, wow, she's slowing down. She hasn't had any children. Like She wasn't having them like she used to. So she gave her slave girl, Zilpah, to Jacob. And Zilpah had two more boys. And sometime later, Leah sells Rachel some mandrakes. And uh, mandrakes are some sort of a love plant. In the traditional Jewish view, it was an ancient folk remedy to help barren women conceive a child. Um, I think it's what it was, folklore, but whatever. So she, she sells Rachel some mandrakes in exchange for a night with Jacob. So he gets in from the field, and she reveals the plan to him. And she said, Jacob, I bought you from Rachel for some mandrakes. Now, that's pretty romantic, really. <laughs> I got some kind of a narcotic here, and I sold it to the other one. And it's you and I tonight, babe. <laughs> As a result, she has another boy... And then later on, she has another boy. Add to those six boys a girl later, Dinah. Finally, finally, a long time later, Rachel has Joseph. And eventually down the line, she is given Benjamin, son of my promise or son of my right arm. And, he, and she actually died in childbirth as Benjamin arrives. So you've been keeping track. Leah has had six boys and one girl, one daughter. And Bilhah, Zilpah, and Rachel have each had two sons. By the way, take the daughter out of the equation. Those sons represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Is God still in the mix? Is God still in the mix? Are you still in the place? Am I still with you? Are you still with me? Okay, good. As long as I got five of you, that's all I care. What a mess this is, huh? Jacob, I don't want to editorialize Jacob. I mean, it seems like he's kind of a patsy in this whole thing, but he's not really innocent at all, at all is he? I mean, it's not like he's some sort of addict. It's just, uh, and by the way, by the way, Jacob now is in his 80s, approaching maybe 90. But listen, if you go over to chapter 47, verse 28, you'll see that Jacob lived to be 147. So if he's in his 80s, that would probably equal like our, let's say, 40-somethings, maybe early 50s. That brings you a lot of hope, doesn't it, guys? All of this had the purpose of children, 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 and more children. The women wanted children. Why? That was a cultural sign as a blessing from God. Especially, no offense, please, no offense, please. Everything's picking, everybody's picking up on political correctness this last two weeks. But especially boy children. Especially sons, heirs of promise. So... And, and it also brought respect and honor from the rest of the clan, the rest of the tribe, so to speak. Remember, the promise of the Savior was going to come through the offspring of Jacob. If you, that's the most important thing we say in this whole story. The promise of the Savior was going to come through the offspring of Jacob. Are we all okay with that? We're all okay. Therefore, the more children they had, 
the better the odds they would have that one or one of them would carry the line of the Savior and did. In order to get the blessing, they found themselves wrapped up in this ugly, competitive, it involved, I mean, involved adultery and selfishness and anger and one-upmanship and all this stuff in order to get what they wanted. It was sort of a Bible-era daytime soap opera, in my words. But now that I've read you that story, I wonder, does that remind you of someone in his earlier years? See, as Jacob dealt with Rachel's demand for children, Jacob had no answer for her. And he said in verse 2 of chapter 30, after she said, give me children or I'll die, she said, he said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? What was he saying to Rachel? He's saying, I'm not God, woman. I'm not in charge of giving you the blessing. I'm not in charge of creating children. That's out of my hands. And I wonder if when he blurted that out to Rachel, he was realizing again his own past sin, of thinking he had to work everything out for the blessing of God by putting on, remember, he put on goat skins and he deceived his own father. And he lied to him. And as Jacob had to live among this ungodly rivalry of two women trying to work out the blessing and and get this blessing out of Jacob by, by, by their childbearing tactics, maybe Jacob then realized that his methods of getting God's blessings were not in keeping with the way God wanted things to be done at all. And during this time, Jacob was also going about his own trickery. Oh, it wasn't all peaches and cream. It wasn't all a clean slate guy here. He's going through his own trickery and continued deception of old Uncle Laban using breeding tactics on Laban's goats in order to build up his own flock. Very ugly practice. You take chapter uh, 30 and read from verse 25 to the end of that chapter and see What a deceiver this man continued to be. Now, what about this training in works? And how much, how how many works are we expected to do in order to gain the approval and the acceptance of God? And and, and how do we know When we've reached that point where we're acceptable with God. And how do we know that we've done enough works to please the demands of a perfect God? What's the sign? What's the symbol? How do we know that? And I ask you those questions because we pretty well all know the answers. It's kind of rhetorical. But when I think of works... Here's how I wrap up this, this silo. I just painted an ugly picture for you of what's going on in Jacob's family. I just pictured, uh, I, just, I just painted, as I said, a soap opera type scenario. Didn't look too good. And I'm, not giving, I'm, I'm still not giving Jacob a pass, you notice, because he's still working his deception. And I want to say this, that how that looked to God 
is the way our best intentions look in God's eyes. What we do is we're introduced to the Bible, we're introduced to the Word of God, we're introduced to heaven, we're introduced on future, we're introduced on eter- to eternity, we're introduced to how do you get there and how do you get there from here and, and all the rest of it. And so we see heaven in the future and we say, I want that. I want that. Does this sound appealing to you? Oh, it does. Would you like to know that when you die? Yes, I would. And would you like to know that that's where you're going to be for all of eternity? Yes, it is. And would you know that that heaven, I can't even describe it to you. The Bible can't even describe it to you. It's beyond human description. Isn't that the place you'd like to be when you exit the... Oh, absolutely. I want that. Mm. I want that. So we get in a competition. And from that moment of wanting that, we try to be more righteous than our brothers and sisters. We may try to give more in different ways. We may try to raise a better family, whatever that is. We may try being more friendly than other people. Okay. And we may even just try, in the sight of God, to give more effort than anybody else. And even if we do all those things, here's what Isaiah the prophet wrote hundreds of years ago. In the 64th chapter of Isaiah, verse 6, he said, All of us have become like one who is unclean. Listen. And what's the next word? And what's the next word? What's the next word? All. I want you to get this. I want you to get this. Because if you miss part of one word, the little words in Scripture are so big and they have such significance. So I'm going to read again if you're following. All of us have become like one who is unclean. And then you accentuate. And our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all so much for salvation by works. So much by, for salvation in, in a church. So much for salvation through some denomination or organization or external human blessing of some kind. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And we all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind. Our sins sweep us away. You came here for encouragement this morning. Doesn't that lift you up? Now, I want you to feast on it. Some of you are looking at that like you'd never seen it before, and that's fine if you haven't, but now you have. So I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do something else, and I'm going to look pretty while I do it, and mm, God's going to, oh, God. I can't even explain how blown away God must be. And Isaiah brought me back down to earth and said, uh, <clears throat> all, not some, not a few, not one or two, not certain ones that you pick out, all of your righteous deeds and acts are like filthy rags. 
Wow. The story doesn't end there, and I know you're glad. But when we think we're better, and when we really think we're earning some kind of inside blessing, i got to tell you, it still doesn't look too impressive to God. No more impressive, indeed, Isaiah said, than a medicinal wrap or a putrid cloth that is good for nothing but the garbage and for the incinerator. What a disgusting picture Isaiah draws for us. What a disgusting picture Jacob and his wives are painting for us. It shows us the grandest and finest work of one of God's foremost saints, Jacob. God have mercy on us all. Imagine if God had a tape recorder of all the promises and all the sweet talk that you ever offered to your spouse in order to win his or her approval. Or imagine if the world examined the way we act at church, you and I, and then side by side examined the way we act in public. And it pretty much does now. It's called Facebook. It's going to be the ruin of so many people. Wow. It's already been the ruin of so many relationships. Yeah, what, 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 if, what if, the, if the world examined the persona that we're trying to put on? And what, what, what if the world around us really knew our heart? I'm just going to admit it for all of us. What hypocrites we'd look like. Oh, excluding 10 to 11.30 on Sunday morning, of course. The holy hour. Huh? Hmm. What ugly rags we would have to offer. See, and can I, can I stress this again? Because I don't think it can be overstressed. That is where works get us. Nobody has ever earned a half an inch on their way to heaven by works. We don't get there by works. Don't you wish Jacob had had somebody preach this message to him and say, Jacob, you don't do it by works. You don't do it by trying one thing one way and one thing another way and asking God to bless you and where have you been and why don't you come and help me and blah, 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 on the one hand and then on the other hand, live like there is no God. Our works get us nowhere when we try to impress God. Whenever we try to earn our goods from God, we provide a much uglier chapter than even this 30th chapter of Genesis. And that's a pretty strong indictment. So that's training in works. I don't want to belabor it, but I did want to accentuate it. I wanted you to understand that you can train in works for a lifetime and still not get there. So, you have problems? Really? You have a problem. Really? Let's look at the third silo. Thank God we got to it. Third silo of training I call the training in mercy. Wow. Wow. Why don't we just give it up for the mercy of God? How about that?
Sorry, God, that's all I could round up this morning. And the reason you get tepid response like that is because people have never been taught the real meaning of the mercy of God. Stay tuned right here. After all said and done, usually more is said than done, there is one person, one only, one only, who stands out in the middle of this whole ugly, rotten story, and it's not Jacob. He has a few commendable features. I'm going to give the devil his due. But listen, that person is the person of Jesus Christ. He's the only begotten Son of God. Like you're asking me this morning, Bob, how in the world could God have allowed this big old mess to continue? How in the world... Could, could he not have said, I think we're going to find a different patriarch. Yeah, I think I've changed my plan here, or we're going to find a different wife. Mm. Yet God, in his unbelievable mercy, granted children a dozen plus, a baker's dozen, to Leah, Rachel, and even the slave girls. Within these offspring, God provided a future priesthood in the Levites, thirdborn of Leah, and a future Savior through the line of Judah, the fourthborn of Leah. Think about that. Think about this. He gave, God gave a woman who wasn't loved by her husband. He didn't even want her. She deceived him into marrying her. And God gave her the most wonderful gift that's ever been given. Why? Chapter 29, verse 31. When God saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. But Rachel, but Rachel, (laughs) remained childless. Now, when Rachel had all but given up every slice of hope that she would ever, ever, ever have a child, in chapter 30, little verse that's tucked away you might have missed, and verse 22, the Lord said, he also remembered and listened to Rachel. So neither Rachel... See, sometimes you pray... And sometimes there's no immediate answer. And sometimes you think God didn't hear. And sometimes you almost give up on this whole thing of prayer. And sometimes you just say, well, what's the use? And is there really a God? And does he really care? And does he know where I live? And does he know what's going on in my life? And blah, blah, blah. The problem with prayer, folks, is it's a two-way communication. And we're using it as a one-way communication. We're just telling God what we want him to do and when we expect it done. How much time are we spending listening to his response? And in chapter 30, verse 22, it said, And God noticed Rachel. He knew she was still childless. And he remembered. And he listened to her. 
can I say this inside? This will be a real uh, theological explanation, and I hope some of you can get it. But if you'd shut up long enough, you might hear God actually speaking. Because we're so busy telling God how to be God and what we expect to happen next in our lives. Has it happened yet, God? And then we just go on a merry way getting busy doing something else. So I read in this chapter, I'm finding all kinds of little extra messages in here, but I'm finding that listening helps. It really helps. So she'd almost given up. God remembered. He listened to her. And neither Rachel, who stole... Uh, by the way, Rachel, they're all into this thing. It's unbelievable, the stuff that went on. Chapter 21, 19. Uh, uh, 31, 19, excuse me. It, it says that uh, Rachel stole some of the, some of the household gods, uh, the little idols and stuff from Laban's house. I mean, they were at this stuff all the time. Or Leah, who lied and attributed to the adultery of her husband, deserved any blessing from God. Nothing. If you were God, who in that whole pack of people, which one would you choose to bless and how would you bless them? Would you have blessed them? Would you have blessed Jacob? Be honest. You and I, as we think of this thing, would we have blessed Leah? Would we have blessed Rachel? Would we have blessed the slave girls? Of course not. They were lying. They were stealing. They were deceiving. Come on, people. They were committing adultery. They were living against every dictate and principle and precept of the Word of God. What did they deserve from God? Nothing. Yet, He gave them children. Yet he kept the line of the Savior alive. This is the crux of my message this morning. Therefore, it has to go back to nothing else than pure mercy. How many of you, honestly now, be with me, how many of you appreciate the mercy of God? Because the mercy of God is God not giving us what we deserve. So now are you identifying with Jacob? Now are you seeing, you get right down to the fine line, your family and my family, they're no better than Jacob's family in that way. And then look at Jacob. Why did God decide to bless Jacob with these children as he was so conflicted all the time with these four women, poor man, poor man, mercy, 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 more mercy. This is the most amazing thing in this whole story. Since they were acting in ignorance, God didn't condemn them. Instead, he stuck to his promise. He gave them their blessing in spite of their foolishness and in spite of all their harmful works. So Jacob, after 20 years of striving and 20 years of hard work, he's learning some difficult lessons. In spite of his sins, God still blessed him in the end. He ended up with a huge flock of speckled sheep and goats and lambs. And after God had accomplished these lessons of life in Jacob, he said to him, chapter 31 now, verse 3, he said, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives and I will be with you. It was time for his freedom, finally, from Laban. 
even when Uncle Liar Laban tried to pursue him and tried to guilt him. And tried to get him to stay. His hold was pretty strong right now in Jacob. The Lord prohibited him from the powerful influence he had exhibited up to this point. And with a powerful dream, Laban was left with nothing but idle babbling at the departure of his daughters, his grandsons, his granddaughter, and his son-in-law slash nephew. God had used this heathen's offspring and land and animals to bless the person he wanted to bless. And that person was Jacob. When Jacob realized this, it empowered him to leave Laban for good. The only time... The only way that you'll leave what's holding you back is when you realize the mercy of God has freed you to go, to give it up, to forget that, to get beyond it, to drop that relationship, whatever it is. Take a moment and think about the person in your life right now that might be really irritating you the most. I mean, they really get under your skin and they just make you want to run away. Don't look at anybody specifically, but if you want to, that's up to you. We ask if you're going to be physical that you do it off the property. Think of the person who's cheating you. Think of the person who has cheated you. Think of the person who's lying to you. Oh, 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 oh. Listen to this. Think of the person maybe who's being honest with you right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that runs deep, doesn't it? Huh? Think of the per. Let's just all do it at once and then we'll get it over with. Um, think of the person who's trying your patience. Think of the uncle liar Laban. Think of who your Rachel is. Think of who your Leah is. You say, yeah, I know who that is. That's my boss <laughs> or one of my children or that's my spouse or that's my ex or that's, uh, that's my pastor. And the natural reaction, it's okay. It's okay. You can not like me. Nothing in the Bible says you have to like me. The Bible does say you have to love me, but you do not have to like me. No, it does. It does. It says love one another with a godly love. I mean, you don't have a choice on that. But you don't have to like me. And I could get terribly under your skin and stay there. Some of you know for 26 years. I got advice for you in a minute if you'll just stick with it. So what's the natural reaction when we get that person? Some of you are picturing that person. The natural reaction is to pray a prayer like this. God, please get that person out of my life. I don't care how you do it. 
Either that or the natural physical reaction is to run and just give up. Hence the divorces. Hence the changes of jobs. Hence the change of churches. Anything that can be done to get away from the person that is irritating the living life out of you. And that is not the solution. Because wherever you run, guess who's going to be there? Right. You. First of all, remember, God's in charge. Don't try to take things into your own hands. As these people wrong you in life and demand more than you can give, let it be an opportunity for you to take time for reflection. Ask yourself, have, how have I done this same thing to somebody else? Ooh. What is happening to you right now? Who is it that's burning you inside and giving you that peptic ulcer? Say to yourself, how have I done this to somebody else? When have I done this to God? Am I deserving of this kind of behavior? And as you do it, you're going to start to appreciate how patient and forgiving God has been with you. When you remember that God sent Jesus to die for you, knowing that you wouldn't act the way you've acted, and knowing that God has continued to give you his Holy Spirit's power and presence in spite of your sin, it will make you cling all the more to his mercy. It will also then remind you that God is still in charge. God is in control. If he could use a greedy uncle and some jealous wives, listen, to produce 12 children and plenty Plenty, plenty of livestock for Jacob. God can use that liar Laban in your life to bless you in some way you've never dreamed. Nothing is beyond him. Instead of running from your Laban, give him a big hug or a kiss. Thank God for him. Thank God for your Rachel. Thank God for your Leah. Thank God for the slave girls. They're blessing you in some way, and they don't even know it. And you are not probably even aware of it. And then the comeback, usually human comeback, is, well, it's not fair. It's not fair. No, it's not fair. Did you ever hear that? I'm not going to ask if you ever used it because none of you ever would have, but did you ever hear that? How many of you in here have children? Well, then your hand should be up. Well, what's wrong with you this morning? Did you ever hear that? I guess as a pastor for over 40 years now, I've heard that phrase more than any of you here, probably more than all of you combined. (laughs) So here's my answer. Life isn't fair. Find it in the book and we'll discuss it, but it's not, it doesn't say it'd be fair. Life is to be lived. So live it. And if there's some stuff that you consider unfair... You have to live with it because we live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world. We live in a sinful world. You can't expect sinful people to treat you fairly, especially when you yourself haven't been fair to people all the time. Keep in mind from today's story that God doesn't need fair people to administer his justice. Well, that's pretty clear from today's story. If he really wanted to be fair with us, he would have sent us to a hopeless eternity of death and destruction with no chance of survival. Yet he isn't just about being fair. 
He's more about being merciful. And if you're making notes on a pad this morning or on, in your notebook, just, just, just print the word fair, F-A-I-R, and then put a slash through it and right beside it underneath it write mercy. God isn't about fairness. That's not his game. Mercy's his game. That's what I love about him. That's what I love about the Lord Jesus. And we know that through faith in Christ's uh, death on the cross, the justice and the mercy of God have already been carried out. The fairness was dealt with at the cross. Because he took your sin and he took my sin, all of our sin, past, present, and future, and they were nailed to the cross of Calvary. So much for the it isn't fair bit. (laughs) The fairness and justice of God and the demands of that justice were met and satisfied at the cross of Calvary. Hallelujah! And my faith in that finished work of grace opens the door to heaven for eternity. We know that God works all things out for good. We've been trained to see in the death and life of Christ that every promise in the book is true. And he fulfilled every prophecy. And when God calls us to leave our Haran, we can know that we've been, still been blessed with a Savior, just as Jacob did. We can know that we're heading to the promised land, just as Jacob did. 31 verse 3 says, go back to your home, go back to your land, go back to your people. That was Luz, or what became known as Bethel. And there is nothing any Laban or any lying uncle or any Satan can do about it. When God says go, and we start heading on that journey, there's nothing anyone can do to stop that journey. So I want you, dear friends, to remember your training. And by the way, I'm going to cue the worship team. You can come now if you'd like. I want to remember your training in patience, in works, and in mercy. So, you have a problem? Really? Can we take this quiet moment and go to the Lord in prayer? Pray with me. Loving Father, precious God, God of mercy, God of grace, God of kindness, God of eternal love, God of creation, God of all power, God who is with us, never leaves us, never forsakes us, God who is our ever-present help in time of trouble. Thank you for teaching us patience in the manner that you deem best. That isn't always easy. But it is beneficial. Thank you for reminding us that works at their best. Accumulated over many years even. Can never overcome the sin debt that we owe. 
and remind us that it is your mercy and your mercy alone that sets us apart, that gives us hope, that puts us on the right path back to the place of blessing. And for any that are here this morning, O oh God, that do not know Jesus, do not know that freeing, freeing moment when they do that about face and leave the path of sin and move on to the path of righteousness, we pray that today will be the day that you convict and convert and receive all the glory. Thank you for this moment. Thank you for these listening ears. Thank you for these attentive hearts and minds. Thank you for the lessons you've taught us from the life of Jacob. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a decision to make today, a spiritual decision, one maybe you haven't made or one you want to talk about, please fill in the Connect card that's in front of your seat there and leave it with me. Come see us. Leave it in one of the boxes in the, in the entryway. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your patience.